I'm, I'm Brian, I'm one of the elders here at North Shore, and I get to read the scripture for today, which is out of Ephesians 5, uh, 3 to 20, and then we'll pray. Here's the word of the Lord. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as it is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when everything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand that the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are holy beyond what we can imagine. Great is your faithfulness and great is your name and great is your love for us. Help us to obey with joy and without hesitation. Help us to love you and to love others like you love us. Help us to use everything that we have, everything you have given us, to serve and to love you more and to know you better. Because oftentimes we take what you've blessed us with and treat it poorly. We don't thank you or praise you for the provisions and mercy we have received. Please forgive us for those sins. Help us to recognize that all things are a result of your love and your grace and your mercy towards us, and help us to praise you for that. May we be a people that respond quickly with thankfulness and praise to you. And Father, we, we lift up Ryan and Rebecca Panoski this morning with their new little guy, Nahum, right now. We understand that he's in the, he was in the ICU yesterday, and we know that you love Nahum, God. We pray for healing, for whatever it is that's going on with him, and for peace and mercy for the family. We also pray for Bethany, for Chuck, for Michelle, for John Hickson, Chris Gretzinger, and all of whom have you know, gone through recovery from surgery or injuries. Father, help each of them to heal and to recover quickly and completely. Lord, we pray for all those feeling burned out after this holiday. We pray that you would give them rest. 
Father, we also pray for those that, are, that, that don't know you yet. Because we know our joy and love for you grows when we see those that didn't know you come to know you. We know that it is, that it is only you that can draw us to yourself. Because we were, we were there at one time. We were all your enemy once. Please knock down those walls, lift that veil, and remove all those obstacles that are preventing those from knowing you. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be super busy this morning. Open the eyes of our heart, Lord, all of us. And Father, we thank you that it is in you we find our strength. It is in you that we have and find our purpose. And it's in you that we find true joy. If not for you, we'd be condemned. It is because of you that we can be and are saved. May all the praise and honor that we can muster go to you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Our Father and our God, we're grateful for Jesus Christ. We're grateful for your word. We pray that as this ministry goes forth, that it would be your word, that it would be Christ-exalting, that it would be strengthening to us, and that God, your spirit, would be active in and through your word today, for Jesus' sake. And in his name we pray, amen. We continue this week in the fifth chapter of this letter to the Christians in Ephesus. In this section of the letter, as we've seen, Paul is highlighting the radical and essential change that Jesus makes in the lives of believers when they are brought into the kingdom of God. We've seen that believers have put off the old self and have put on the new, completely new, created in the likeness of Christ in true righteousness and holiness, Paul says. We've seen that believers are called to imitate God. And last week we saw, as Brian read, the believers have left behind shameful things like sexual immorality and making idols of the things of this world by coveting or sinfully seeking after them. In today's text, Paul again reviews a central truth to his argument that runs through this section of Ephesians. He tells us that one reason believers must avoid sexual sin and idolatry, because that's his that's his context, is because we've been changed so fundamentally that this kind of lifestyle is contrary to our new nature. In fact, this change has been so radical that Paul uses the polar opposite metaphors of light and darkness to convey this reality. In our text for this morning, Paul is building on truth revealed throughout the Scripture, especially in the New Testament, the truth that there are two spiritual kingdoms represented in this world. The kingdom of darkness, led, of course, by sin and Satan, where they reign, and the kingdom of light, where King Jesus, the light of the world, reigns in glory over his people. There are likewise within these two kingdoms people who exist and live, each expressing the values and priorities and agendas of each particular kingdom. As we've seen repeatedly in this section of Ephesians, 
we notice that Paul's argument is, is that one reason why believers do not live in that kind of spiritual darkness is because that's not our identity in Christ. We've been brought out of darkness and now live in the light of Christ. For believers to live like those who are in darkness, that would contradict who God has created us to be in Christ. The fact that that is repeated so often in this section should tell us that it's very important. Paul centers everything in this passage around two major truths. The first is what God has done in believers through their conversion. And the second is the transforming power of faithful believers. Paul's first truth, what God does in believers in their conversion, is simply a new way of stating here that a believer has put off the old person and put on the new. He just switches the description of what happens to believers using these metaphors of darkness and light. And that is the believer's transformation from spiritual darkness to spiritual light. The metaphor of darkness and light, very common biblical theme, especially in the words recorded in John's Gospel by Jesus. The Apostle John loves these word pictures, and he loves the metaphor of darkness and light. So in order for us to get a little better handle on what Paul is saying here, we want to just spend a very few moments reviewing this truth of Scripture that Paul is drawing on here. When we think about this picture of light, we first know that this is a way that Jesus refers to himself. He tells his disciples in places like John 9, 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now to the Jews of Jesus' day, the image of their Messiah coming as light, that would have been bringing up images of Isaiah's prophecy, a prophecy that is frequently preached around Christmas. The prophet writing of the coming Messiah says in 9.2, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. That's speaking of Jesus who was to come. As God incarnate, Jesus is the personification of spiritual light, but he's more than that. He came to bring his light into this dark world and to make followers to be like him the light of the world. And so he tells his disciples in places like Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. He says in John 12, 36, while you have the light, speaking of himself, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So those who believe in Jesus actually become the light as he was the light, sons of light. Another important truth is the relationship between light and darkness that, again, is very much implied in what Paul is saying here. Jesus says in John 3, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So the light and the darkness are adversarial. They're opposed to one another. People in darkness hate the light. They don't come to the light, whether that light is in Jesus or the people of Jesus, because they know that the light in Jesus or his people would expose the wicked things they do in the secrecy of their spiritual darkness. Well, that gives us a foundation 
to stand on to look at these truths that Paul gives us here. And in 5, beginning in verse 8, he explains why believers do not partner with those who are in spiritual darkness, why we don't engage in their sinful activities. And he says, the reason is, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Last week, we saw that Paul's first reason why believers must not join in the shameful activity, sexual activities and idolatry, is because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, which is very sobering. So that was reason number one. We looked at that last week. Here in this section, he gives a second reason why we shouldn't become partners with the darkness. And he says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord walk as children of light. Again, we've heard this argument multiple times from Paul in this section. His second reason that believers must not participate in these sins is because those things belong in the darkness, but we are light in the Lord. We used to be darkness, now we are light. Believers mustn't participate in the darkness of sexual sin and idolatry because their spiritual nature has been fundamentally changed from darkness to light. Notice how Paul words this. He doesn't say that believers were once in the darkness or that believers once participated with the darkness or in the darkness. It says, no, you were darkness. Unbelievers are spiritual darkness personified because of their identification with the spiritual darkness in which they live. The same is true for the believer's new identity. We're not simply in the light, as Jesus says. We are the light of the world. This new nature of the believer is not simply different than unsaved people. It's opposite to, and it's opposed by, unsaved people. Do we understand this? For instance, in Paul's present context of sexual immorality, unsaved people view sex from their dark context, recreational activity, mainly for the purpose of receiving selfish pleasures. That's from the darkness. Believers view sex from their perspective of spiritual light as an expression of self-giving covenant love for the purpose of worshiping God through covenant renewal in marriage. That's light, completely opposed to the darkness. The context tells us that those radical differences in perspective exist not because one group happens to choose one particular set of ethics that seems more appealing to them and the other group chooses a set of sexual ethics that they seem to agree with. No, these differences arise from the radical differences in the essential nature of the two groups. One group understands sexual activity one way because that's who they are. And the other group has a radically different understanding and practice of sex because that's who they are. Those of the darkness pursue 
darkness. Those of the light have been reborn out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and they pursue light. Again, we mustn't miss Paul's emphasis on believers living holy lives, not mainly out of some obligatory sense of Christian morality, but from our new identity in the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, and the gospel is the power of God for holy living. Sexual virtue is distinctively Christian and God-honoring only when it flows from the new nature of Christ through the gospel. Christians increasingly live in ways that are very different than the people of this world because we're fundamentally, essentially different people. Do we believe that in our hearts? This is more than just a theological box we need to check off. Next in verses 9 through the first half of verse 11, Paul spells out three characteristics of believers who are obedient to Paul's command in verse 8 to walk as children of the light. What does it mean, Paul, to walk as children of the light? He gives three characteristics. First, he says, the first characteristic of walking in the light is our lives produce good spiritual fruit. That's what Paul says in verse 9 in this parenthetical explanation of what it is to live as children of the light. He says, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Now this word fruit is intentionally chosen by Paul because its range of meaning is very helpful and very important. It implies certain truths that help us understand why it is that Christians live good and right and true lives. He's using this word fruit in the same way that Jesus does in Luke chapter 6. He says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. Similarly, in Galatians chapter 5, Paul uses the phrase, the fruit of the Spirit. Here he uses the phrase, the fruit of the light. In very similar ways. In both instances, he wants us to see that believers produce spiritual fruit. And the fact that he uses fruit instead of, say, works, has at least two implications. First, the fruit produced is consistent with the tree it grows on. As Jesus said, if it's bad fruit, it's because it's a bad tree. If it's good fruit, it's because the tree is good. The tree of the believer produces fruit that is consistent with their nature. Believers, or as Paul says here, the light produces fruit that is good and right and true because it's their nature to produce that kind of fruit. The second implication of Paul's use of the word fruit here is that spiritual fruit is produced not mainly through human striving, but by the nature of the believer. When you walk through an orchard, we've all heard this, I think, we're reminded that the fruit of the trees is not produced by the exertion of the tree. You don't hear any trees groaning and you walk through an orchard to produce their fruit. There are no signs of outward stress to indicate, wow, they're really producing fruit. They're really working at it. No, it produces fruit simply because it's a tree, not because of any heroic effort on the part of the tree. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul uses this fruit metaphor to communicate that the believers are to live spiritually passive lives. The metaphor simply communicates that the spiritual fruit must fundamentally flow out of the nature of the believer, out of the nature of light, 
And whatever effort is required is something the believer does by nature and not because we're striving to be good and moral people. Next, Paul reveals the kind of fruit produced in very broad terms. He says, all that is good and right and true. Now, those words in Scripture are again and again and again used to refer to God and his activity. And so Paul's implying that the fruit or character of believers is like the fruit or character of God. It's the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit or the fruit is good, that's not hard to explain. It's good in the sense that it's coming out of our goodness to Christ and it does good things for other people. Believers do what is right in the sense that they live morally upright lives. And finally, we do what is true in the sense that what we do comes out of hearts that have been recreated by God to be honest and sincere. There's no pretense. It's not a game. A second characteristic of walking in the light is in verse 10 and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. A second characteristic of walking in the light is we work to discern what is pleasing in the Lord. If Paul tells us only that we must walk in ways that are good and right and true, that doesn't give us a lot of guidance in terms of specific situations. It doesn't help us all that much. So here Paul is saying that part of what the light does by nature is we know what is pleasing to God. That is, believers can know what it is to be good and right and true in a specific situation. This is very similar to what Paul says in Romans 12. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and perfect and acceptable. Three different terms, but mean basically the same thing. As our minds are renewed, we will increasingly be able to discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Again, it's something of a challenge to know what God means by good and perfect and acceptable. Those, again, are very broad contexts. In a complex world, this isn't easy to do, which is why Paul says in verse 13, we try to discern what is good and right and true. Part of what it is for believers to be part of the light is that we have by our nature an innate means by which we can much more clearly know what the will of God is than other people. The third and final characteristic of walking in the light is in verse 9 where Paul says that believers take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And this is clear. Believers take no part in unfruitful works of darkness. Paul's immediately context, we have to remember, is sexual immorality and idolatry, the idolatry of being covetous and having covetous desires. Paul says these things of the darkness are unfruitful, which literally means they don't profit anybody. They're good for nothing. By contrast, believers or the light they live more purposeful, meaningful, productive lives. The fruit of darkness is to be unfruitful, good for nothing. Tragically, that's the spiritual state of unbelievers, and it should break our hearts. That's Paul's revelation of the transformation from light to darkness that takes place in conversion. The second main truth is found in the last phrase of verse 11 through 14. The second truth that Paul reveals here is the transforming power of those who walk in the light. 
the transforming power of those who walk in the light, or we could say the transforming power of God through those who walk in the light. We've seen repeatedly in this section that the believers do not simply avoid moral vices, they live out spiritual virtues. In these verses, Paul's going to reveal that believers aren't simply transformed people, they actively transform the world around them. The first part of that transforming work is that we take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. The fact that believers expose works of darkness is nothing new. It fits with this whole light-darkness metaphor. That's why Jesus says in John 3, those who do wicked things hate the light and do not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Light exposes spiritual darkness. If you're walking into a dark cave, you have no idea what manner of vermin might be living in there. You may hear them scurrying around in there, but until a light is turned on, you just don't know what is, that cave is filled with. What does this look like for the believer to be exposing the works of darkness? That's a good question. I mean, does this mean that we live our lives as some sort of spiritual investigative force hunting down immorality so that we can blow the whistle on sinners and embarrass them? That's not part of what Paul means in verse 12 when he says, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Believers recognize that things like sexual immorality are shameful things, but Paul's not causing us or calling us to live smug and self-righteous lives. Light exposes what is in the darkness just by being near it. Paul says that believers are to live as light that shines in the midst of darkness. Those of the darkness live as they do in their sexual immorality and their idolatrous coveting because in their futile thinking, they have believed the lies of the world. Lies like, if you deny yourself sexual pleasure, you can't be happy and fulfilled. Or, if you don't have sex before marriage, you're not going to know if you're compatible. Or, lies like, you can't be happy without lots of money and possessions because that's what brings fulfillment to life. They make you happy. Well, into that lie-saturated darkness that dominates the worldview of unbelievers, the light of Christ shines through believers who are living chaste lives before marriage and who, according to all of the studies, have much more satisfying intimate lives than those who are sleeping around. They're happier marriages, in part born out of premarital chastity. They expose the lies of the sexual revolution. This is just one example of how this works. As it relates to idolatry, here's an illustration. A group of corporate tycoons gather together for lunch every Tuesday. They're all lost, they're all in spiritual darkness, and they're all, as a result, aggressively coveting and pursuing money and wealth and the trappings that are connected with that. And into that group of wealthy, money and success-driven friends steps a devout Christian chief executive officer. And they get to know this man. And this man gives much of his money away. He drives a well-used car. He lives in the suburbs and he flies coach. He also has joy and peace and a loving, selfless heart. He has a happy marriage and kids he gets to spend a lot of time with and who enjoy spending time with him. 
without any intentional effort to expose the darkness of these other corporate heads, this man, simply by the spiritual light in his nature, exposes the lies of the darkness. And these idolatrous corporate leaders who are energetically working to find satisfaction in the things of this world and not finding it. They have great wealth and they also drink heavily to escape the emptiness of their souls. Their marriages are breaking up and their kids are distant and wayward. By dramatic contrast, the believing business executive is not pursuing happiness in the dark pursuits of this world, but by living in the light, pursuing the things of the light. Unlike the other corporate bosses, he owns no yacht or mansions or a whopping investment portfolio, but he's far more satisfied with the rest of them put together. Just by living his life as the light, he exposes the dark lies of these people and what they're living by. That's what Paul is saying in verse 13 when he says, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. So the emptiness and futility of the lies of these corporate heads in darkness was not clearly seen until they were exposed by the light of the Christian executive and his radically different life. This believer is living a life completely at odds with their value system, living in ways they would have never thought could be satisfying. And because he's filled with joy and contentment, his life totally exposes those other people and he disproves the lies that they're believing. The believer is not on a crusade to expose the dark lies of these other people. He's just living his life as the light and his light exposes the darkness. But in verse 14, Paul takes it one step further. He says, for anything that becomes visible is light. Now that's awkward wording. Paul seems to be saying that not only does the light expose the darkness, in certain cases, it actually transforms the darkness into light. This would be like one of those dark CEOs noticing the light of this Christian man's life and instead of blowing it off like the rest of his corporate friends, by the grace of God, he sees the light and he's transformed by it. He comes to see that he and his dark priorities have been all wrong. So instead of running from the light by discounting and making all sorts of excuses why this believer appears to be happy, he actually runs to God. He turns in repentance and faith, and he converts to the light. And like any conversion, this one is completely, totally, utterly by the grace of God. The point is that the light of this believer can be the means by which God opens the eyes of those who are in darkness to see how futile their thinking has been, and they can be miraculously converted. Now, we mustn't misunderstand. Paul is not implying that believers never have to open our mouths to share the gospel with people, but simply just live our lives. His own life as an apostle contradicts that. Most of the time, the light of the gospel must at some point be spoken into the lives of people. But at the very least, he is saying that indispensable to our witness is the witness of the light of Christ manifest in our holy living. You show me a devout believer whose life is marked by intense spiritual light, and I will show you someone who is making an impact for the Lord in this dark world just by being who God made him or her to be. 
Finally, Paul supports this notion that the light of the believer can bring about the conversion of others by citing a rather curious piece of poetry. To support his claim that the light can transform the darkness, he says, Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Scholars cannot agree where Paul is getting this. They just don't know. It's similar to a couple of verses in Isaiah in very different places in the book, but it's certainly not anything approximating a direct quote from Isaiah. Many scholars believe that Paul is quoting part of a song that was sung as part of an early Christian worship liturgy. They don't know that, but it sounds like it could be that kind of thing. Well, in those services, unbelievers were frequently in attendance. And so this is addressed to unbelievers visiting worship services. That's the thinking anyway. And it's a call for unbelievers to wake from their sleep of spiritual death and Christ will shine on you. Whatever the source of the quotation, we can clearly see that the light of the believers that shines in the darkness of this unbelieving world is Christ himself. Christ will shine on you. Christ is the light of believers through the Holy Spirit. We're like spiritually incandescent light bulbs. Not LED bulbs. We're incandescent. Christ is the divine filament, if you will, glowing within us that produces the light. We don't produce the light independently. It's the light of Christ glowing in us and shining on others through us, and it shines on the darkness. So that's what he says, but what does it mean to us? How are we to apply that? Well, one way is, as we've seen before, and that is allow these verses to reinforce to you a very important spiritual truth. That's why Paul repeats it, and that is, your light in the darkness is not the product of purely human effort, but of, your trans- of God's transforming work in your life. Again, the point is not that we are passively living out life. That's not the point at all. The point is that ultimately it is Christ's work through the gospel that makes us light. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives this same dynamic as he's comparing and contrasting his work with the other apostles. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is in me. To edit Paul's message using this metaphor of Ephesians chapter 5, he would say, I shone more brightly than any of them, but it was Christ shining through me, not my shining. Paul knew that all of his work was a product of God's grace in him. He was filled with joy and peace in the midst of his incredible labors because it was the grace of God actively working through him. So one of the lessons is we must never reduce the Christian life to filling out a spiritual to-do list. And that is so easy to do. We find works very compelling. Give me stuff to do. That's not the argument here at all. It's much more, Paul says by implication, about thinking and praising and worshiping God for what he has done for us and who he has made us to be through the gospel. That is, light in the midst of darkness, trusting him to shine his light through us. As we do that, we will be transformed. The fruit will naturally appear. Christ will increasingly shine more brightly. And of course, all of this was done at the cross. 
When Jesus died, he didn't die just to forgive us our sins. He died to make us a holy people. He didn't die just to justify us. He died to sanctify us. We have to see that. It all goes back to his finished work on the cross. The second point of application is more basic. This entire section in Ephesians has been devoted to this drastic, radical change that Jesus makes in the life of a believer. And so as we're nearing the end of this section, it's appropriate for us to ask, Have I experienced this drastic change from darkness to light? If you go from a dark room into a light room, that's not a mystery. You know that happened. You would think that you would know if you're gone from death to life, darkness to light. You'd think that would kind of be evident to you. So we need to ask ourselves, how are my desires, my priorities, my values different now than when I was in the darkness? For some who've grown up in Christian homes, this is more difficult because you don't remember a time when you were converted per se. For you, the question would sound more like, how are my desires and priorities and agendas and values different than the unchurched, unsaved people that I spend time with at school or at the YMCA or in the PTA meeting? Could I rightly claim that my life is like light compared to their darkness? Boy, those are basic questions. We shouldn't obsess over them, but occasionally when we're thinking about them, we need to ask ourselves the question. If you can't give a clear reply to that question, something's wrong. Light and darkness are very different. That's the point of the illustration. If the light that supposedly shines within you can't be distinguished from the darkness, then it's darkness. It's not light. If the way you live your life looks more like the darkness and causes you to have doubts about whether you're in the light, don't blow that off. Go to that place. Pray and ask God. Show me, God. Ask counsel from other Christians you trust and ask questions about these things. This is is a matter of eternal significance to you. Allow other people to pray for you. May God give us the grace to live as light, the light of the world in the midst of a darkness for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're so grateful for Jesus, the light of the world. We're so grateful that he shines in us if we are in Christ by the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray, God, that you would speak to them what you want them to apply. But God, I do pray that you would help them to know in very clear ways whether they're living more like the light or like the darkness. And Father, I pray, God, that you'd help us to be brutally honest about that with ourselves. Father, we pray that you would keep us from reducing the Christian life to just a bunch of good stuff that we're supposed to do because that's our duty. Father, keep us from that. God, it's about a relationship. It's about being one in you through the Spirit of God. It's about being fundamentally, radically, drastically changed from darkness to light. God, that's the gospel. Father, I pray for all of us that you would enable the reality of the gospel to take root in us and that we would live more and more out of what you've done for us and who we are and the new nature that you've given us in Jesus so that we might live as children of the light, for Jesus' sake. And in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.